Friday the 11th of June 2021 and this is episode 21 of Reds Unrestricted. With the Euros about to get underway, we're going to spend this episode delving deeper into the reasons why a lot of Liverpool fans probably won't be cheering England on in the next few weeks. So we're doing something slightly different again this week. Obviously, the Euros start on Friday night, um, England in action on Sunday. So obviously, this is kind of the time of year where major tournament fever sort of grips the nation, if you like. But again, it kind of the debate reemerges um, about how Liverpool fans should view the national team and, in particular, whether they should be cheering the national team on. Um, so what we're going to really dive into today is this whole concept of Scouts not English and why Liverpool fans might not be cheering the England team on. And there'll be a huge range of perspectives uh, across the fan base. Some people will actively want England to fail and some people will just be, some people will support them and some people will be kind of apathetic towards it. So our guest for this episode is Dan Fields and the author of The European Game and Local, which are two books about Liverpool's social history. Um, Dan, thanks very much for coming on. I wanted to ask you as like a introductory question. Um, I've actually got, got your book in front of me and one of the banners um, on the cover, uh, funnily enough, says we're not English, we are Scouse. But I was going to ask, what is your kind of personal feeling before the tournament? Are you going to be supporting England? No, I, I, people will turn off instantly as soon as they hear that, won't they? But no, I, I won't. I, um, and it's not its not kind of in a protest. It's just something that I've never done, never felt any kind of you know emotional attachments to the national team or not just in football, either in cricket or rugby. Which, let's be honest, they're not really sports I watch anyway. Um, but I just don't have that kind of affinity. It wasn't fostered in me from a young age. So, you know, I'm not going to start rooting for them now, even if they've got, you know, Jordan Henderson in the team. It's just not going to resonate. Well, that's kind of the redeeming feature, I suppose. From, from my point of view, like, I, I'm not actually, you know, English. I was born in Dublin. I was just raised in Liverpool, so... I certainly don't have that affinity. I think I'll probably be supporting Scotland, I'd say, just because, um, well, mostly because of Robertson, but also because when it comes to the other home nations, I actually quite like the kind of underdog story. You know, we saw it with Wales at Euro 2016. That was that was quite enjoyable. So that's probably my take on it. But uh, what about you, Dan C, co-host Dan? Um, what's your pre-tournament feelings on it? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm definitely more in sort of the apathetic, sort of nonplussed sort of region, I'd say. I don't actively wish bad upon England. I find it quite funny, though, um, when they do get eliminated uh, inevitably after all the hype, which is kind of where we're at now with all that. It's coming home sort of uh, furor before the tournament starts and it all falls apart for them. So <laughs> I don't support England. Um, I won't be supporting England. But then again, I don't support any nation. I just look at 
it is in it's decent footy um and probably look out for more the Liverpool players um than I do any particular nation, to be honest with you. Um like touched upon Jordan Henderson, I want him to do well, you know. But more than anything, like every international break, just want them to come back not injured really. Well, absolutely, yeah. And we've obviously seen an injury already to Trent, but hopefully he's back for uh, the lion's share of pre-season anyway. Um, and I guess to, to slightly pick up on that, like I think the actual team that England have right now is is mostly a pretty likable team, but naturally that's when it comes to you know supporting supporting a team. There's other factors around it, and one of those is obviously the fan base. Let's talk about the the controversy that's emerged in the last week or so around taking the knee before games. Obviously, you know, this is only a portion of the fan base that are, are booing and uh, there are, you know, a lot of fans applauding as well, you know, trying to drown it out. Uh, and I guess the thing with England is there are a lot of very decent people who support them, funnily enough. Um, but there are also consistently a group of fans who really put a cloud over the whole affair. So coming back to you, Dan F, as this sort of controversy, it shouldn't be a controversy because it's a totally non-political issue, but has it kind of reinforced your feeling of, of alienation? Um, well, I agree with you, with what you were saying as well, that there's a lot of, you know, lovely people who support England, you know, they're patriotic for the country and, you know, they're generally nice people. It's also the case where you've got blind nationalism it attracts, obviously, as well, certain people who are not quite, well, likeable, shall we say, or, or favourable types of people. And they, even though they may be, we like to, well, believe a minority, it's always the minorities which are the most vocal. And I don't think they care that they're tarring the rest of their nation in, you know, in, a, in a negative way when they boo Black Lives Matter. It's... Also, quite sadly, not surprising, is it? You know, it, it's just something that we, we, it sounds terrible, but have come to expect from a portion of England supporters, you know, who go homes, will go to games home and away, who, you know, think nothing about looking for, for fights and, and um, giving their nation a bad light when they're overseas. Uh, so, from my point of view, and it might be similar for you too, I'm ashamed for them. I don't feel like they represent me. I don't feel like these guys are speaking for my nation, so to speak. Um, so I'm looking at them and uh, ashamed for them, not not kind of um, ashamed by them, if that makes sense. Because like you're saying, um, Black Lives Matter, it's not, it's not the, the excuse that they, they're given it. It's not to do with Marxism. It's racism, and it should be called out as such. Yeah. And well done to Gareth Southgate, and well done to Jordan Henderson for, the ta- you know, for, for calling it out as such. And these type of same fans, these same England fans, who will say, we don't want politics or football, well, they also kind of foster that resentment in the Liverpool fan base because they're all for politics being a football they will all sing, you know, feed the scousers every time they come and mm. sign on and all these different types of chants. Uh, so politics is in football and these same types of fans will, will have misconceptions about the Hillsborough disaster and about people from Liverpool. 
politics is in football and they're making sure that that remains as such as well through booing Black Lives Matter. I just think, you know, this political label, the, the idea that the politics tarnishes the pure football and spectacle that they're all there to watch, you know, when they simply have to respectfully observe players showing solidarity for a matter of seconds, you know, that is an insurmountable issue for them, but they'll then sing the national anthem, which is a much more politically charged thing and no one bats an eyelid for that. So if all, if let's just say the arguments fall down under any sort of ounce of scrutiny, Dan C, I want to get your view on this as well. Obviously, um, you'll have, it's been dominating a lot of the, the build-ups, the tournament. Yeah, it has been. Um, and in many ways, like it's a shame um, because... But the problem is, like like Dan just touched upon there, like the minute you kind of put a microscope, it just falls apart at the scene because they've got no leg to stand on. Anything they try and pass it off as just isn't the case. Um it, it is racism. It's nothing but racism. And it has been since day one when the kind of fans started returning. I think there was cases um, at Millwall and some other uh, lower league grounds whereby they got booed, taking the knee. Um, and what I will say is um, it, it is shameful. And, and Dan's right to say he's not ashamed almost like of it. He's ashamed of the fact that, that they kind of are getting all the the talk now ahead of the tournament and that's what's kind of on Sunday a lot of the talk would be about that before the game and not about the game itself and and they always grab the headlines don't they and they always will um, but what I will say is that is England were very quick to kind of jump on the back foot and jump on um, I think it was Bulgaria when they went over there there's quite a lot of racism going on and the fans were ashamed by it and all the rest of it but you know, people in glass houses and all that is all I'd say. And unfortunately, it seems to follow the England fan base wherever they go. And it's not just racism, like it's fighting, it's disturbance. And it, and, and Liverpool kind of get tarred with that brush all the time, <laughs> incorrectly a lot of the time, um, by some of these supporter groups. So, I mean, the hypocrisy just reigns, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, it's, it's not good. Uh, and like I say, unfortunately for them, I seen the fella, I think he was like the, the head of the FA or the England fan group and um, trying to stick up for it on Sky Sports News. And it was just ramblings of a madman, really. It just makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> I agree. Um, and I'm glad you both called it out for what it is and not really, you know, beat around the bush in any way. I do hope that in a, in a strange way, the fact that there are booze almost emphasises the importance of that gesture going on um, and the fact that there is a lot of work to be done to, to change attitudes and that players are sort of, you know, more keen to carry on the gesture going forward because it's kind of taken on a new meaning in a way. But let's move on from that now to the kind of note of the episode. So this Scouts Not English idea, and we've obviously got, you know, we've got listeners that we've talked about before, Dan, and we've got listeners abroad. We've probably got listeners, you know, in other, in other parts of the UK as well who might not, either might not understand what this means or might sort of roll their eyes when they hear it. Um, mm -hmm. So, Dan, um, I want to come to you on this and in kind of the simplest way you can, what does the phrase Scouse Not English actually mean to you? It's 
it's an interesting one, and I know what you mean about some people will, will roll their eyes. There'll be people within this city as well who kind of just roll their eyes as well. Um, and that's understandable. But a lot of it's also ingrained that we, the three of us, will have had experiences. And this isn't, you know, poor woe me, but, you know, I, I, I can think of countless examples where I've, I've, I don't mean abroad. I mean, I've gone into England, I've been in London, the jokes come out, the stereotypes. I remember being a kid camping when I was about eight and uh, I was playing with this other kid and his parent came up and said, don't play with him, he'll nick your toys. And that is, that, I know it's madness to think, <laughs> but that's one of the kind of ingrained understanding that people have mm. um, uh, about people from the city of Liverpool that, okay, it's harmless and it's jovial, but then when it becomes repeated and it's, it's almost like every encounter you have with someone you're just waiting for the joke to come out. You're just waiting for them to have that dig. That slowly over time, you do start to pull up the drawbridge. Um, and it's not just that kind of low-level example. You've got, like, Sheila Coleman during the Hillsborough inquests when she went to the House of Commons and the security guard there is saying, oh, you've got a Scouse accent. Uh, let's hide, hide the silver. You know, and you think about the reason why she was there compared to the response yeah. that even uh, Reverend James Jones in his Hillsborough Independent Report, when he found that negative stereotypes and negative representation of people from Liverpool in the media contributed to the, to the absolute denial of justice. When that is in print, you, you know, in black and white in front of you, then it's only understandable while people in this, why people in this city feel the way they do uh, towards, you know, the English national team. And I, I'm not going to sit here and say I don't like people from England because that's naive and juvenile, and that's not true. You know, I just would like for certain people who to come to a position of understanding to see why we think the way we do and not see it as, as an attack on them. Mm. Identity is such a fluid concept that, you know, you can support England and you can support Liverpool. You can be many different things, but you you should understand why people have counter opinions to you. And um, there's there's enough examples out there which kind of justify why people in Liverpool feel the way they do towards the well, not just the English national team, um, but the idea of of nationhood. Just educate yourselves on it and and come to that under, you know. That, that appreciation really of why people think the way they do. The example that you mentioned of Hillsborough really kind of emphasizes that this is an important discussion and it's not just people from Liverpool being slightly annoyed by jokes. It is kind of a more insidious thing than that and it, it does have very real effects. Um, Dan C, um, how frustrating do you find the perception of Liverpool you know, outside of Merseyside in the rest of the country. Yeah, it, it obviously is. It obviously can be frustrating. I, I must admit, I kind of take things and people on face value, to be fair. Um, and, and much like much like Dan referred to there, I I'm, I'm, don't go out looking to attack in terms of instantly us against the world sort of mentality. But when there are so many examples ingrained into us from like the highest echelons down to like other supporter groups when it comes to footy. Like a good example is the other day when United were protesting against the Glazers, like they were out there protesting against like the greed of their owners, yet found time to sing about 
Liverpool signing on and all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's it's so it is frustrating. Um, but the whole scouts and English thing, I just see it as like I say, a bit of an us against them mentality, and that we all just kind of stick together, um, regardless of, of what comes our way. And um, one of the more sort of bringing it back to football moments that I can remember that made me think like, why would any sane Liverpool fan like support the English national team was the um, Joe Gomez and Raheem Sterling fight. Yeah. Um, and then Joe Gomez got booed when he came on a couple of days later. Yeah. And I just thought Sterling was sat in the stands because I think he'd been banned for the match by Southgate. Um, and Joe Gomez had that cut, didn't he? And yet he was the one getting booed. And I thought, like, and you wonder why Liverpool fans turn their back on the English team. You know what I mean? Um, same season when Van Dijk and Wijnaldum got booed for Holland. Yeah. You know, exactly. why? Let's yeah. not be naive about it. We know why they were getting booed. Exactly. And uh, whether that's been brought upon almost by ourselves in terms of this ingrain, we're not going to back the English team, they could argue. They'd be probably incorrect, but they could probably argue that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the, way I, the way I'd look at it, like I say. Just to kind of... There's so many things, isn't there? We're going to deep delve into the sort of bigger reasons as to why there's this mentality within the city a bit later on. Um, and I think everything has kind of come to a head now. Um, and you won't find many, I think we discussed one off air, but you won't find many Liverpool fans sort of supporting the national team because of it. I think the point you make about the sort of booze, this, this confusing sort of response, like we've, I think, seen it recently as well. Um, I, I should say I've not really seen these things firsthand, but there's been two people on my Twitter feed remarking that there was people laughing when, when Trent was injured. Um, yeah. the tournament wouldn't have happened for a non-Liverpool player, would it? And also, there was a big backlash against Henderson for taking a penalty off Calvert-Lewin and missing it in a friendly that England won uh, as the, well. The same could be said in the media. Sorry to pick you up. The same could be said in the media this week about Henderson, you know, because obviously there's a question marks about his fitness and they've kind of called him out on it and saying he was selfish in a couple of places and he shouldn't be in the squad. And yet Harry Maguire is literally injured. Okay. And he's still there, and not a word has been said. Like it's not something I'm passionate about because I'm not passionate about the England side of things. But it's so blindingly obvious that the target is Henderson when at least he's fit and and training. You know what I mean? Whereas Maguire's just left to carry on injured. I think like the the fr- the frustrating side of it is kind of outweighed for me by a sort of sense of pride because yeah. I watch the the sort of wider political developments in this country and despair. Like, I vividly remember the the night of the uh, 2019 election and seeing like the exit poll come in and stuff and just feeling so kind of, I don't know, so down about it and so pessimistic about the future. But I think even within about 24 hours of that, there was this petition going around for like an independent um, Scouse Republic and stuff. And obviously, you know, it's that's part, it's not entirely serious that, but I do feel it does give me a sense of comfort to be surrounded by people who kind of think in the same way and just find out, you know, the the voting patterns more widely, you know, so ridiculous in a way. And I just to take that a bit further, um, Dan F, you know, the word socialist is used quite a lot in terms of trying to label Liverpool's politics. Like, you know, if that if it, that were the case, 
um, that would make Liverpool quite a significant outlier. You know, not just a it's not just a slight difference, is it? Because we know England is a, a pretty conservative country on the whole. So, to what extent would you would you say that that label of of socialist is, is accurate, and how widely do you think it, it can be applied? Oh God, yeah, it's definitely accurate. And I was the same as you, not just in the 2019 election, but I was absolutely heartbroken um, when the Brexit result came in as well. And, you know, there's, it's this kind of constant um, example of, of, if you think The Sun is the biggest red newspaper in England, doesn't represent us. If you think that Boris Johnson is a man who, who vilified Liverpool people, it doesn't represent us. But it, was, it represents the majority of, of people in England. Yeah. And these kind of examples present us as being outsiders, that our voting patterns go against the voting patterns of, of a lot of people mm. in England as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I, was, I was the same as you. I was absolutely kind of heartbroken. And maybe it, it is a sense that Liverpool is this, you know, socialist place. And when Black Lives Matters um, booers are saying that it's a thing against Marxism, and we're like, <laughs> what's wrong with Marxism? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, but socialism, if we're going to be honest about it, is a, is a belief in fairness as well and is a belief in community. Mm. And I don't see it as a, as a negative thing to be labelled as such. You know, if anything, the, the, the arguments in Liverpool is whether which political party is left of the other one, which one, you know, it's even towards the centre is not a great mm. thing in, in the city of Liverpool. We're looking for yeah. something to be even more left wing of that. Yeah. So uh, you, you've got even your MPs here in, in the city of Liverpool who are now, you know, outliers to the Labour Party because they're more left wing than the institution that they now represent is. Yeah. And that is typical of Liverpool. Um, so, again, maybe we are an echo chamber, maybe we are our own mini republic, but maybe it comes from the top affiliate, from the fact that, geographically speaking, we're not even attached to any major motorway through the entire country. We are geographically out on the tip of England, and historically speaking, all of our incomes and revenues and ambitions and ideas came from overseas. Mm-hmm. So... It could be that there's a lot there's a lot that could explain it. And I think the socialist label, like the kind of people who are booing taking the knee when they hear that word or when they use that word, it's almost like a scaremongering tactic. They're afraid of it. But it's actually something that we kind of strive towards in the city, I think. But if that is the identity of the fan base the fan base, the football club in the city more generally, um I wanted to ask you, Dan, see where you kind of sit in this discussion about whether Conservative Party voters have a place in the Liverpool fan base. It's it's such a difficult one because obviously living in the city and like knowing like all my mates I'd go to the game with aren't and never would dream of being and they probably wouldn't be my mates if they were. But at the same time, we'd be naive to say that like that conservative vote of Tories don't support Liverpool like across the length and breadth of the country. We all know, sat here, that Liverpool fans stretch far and wide, you know, across the world, let alone Great Britain. But there will be conservative party voters that support Liverpool. It's just a fact. So to say they couldn't is is a bit wrong. Um, but 
could they live in Liverpool and do it? Probably not, because it just goes against everything the city stands for um, and everything the city's been through as well, to be fair, um, not just what we stand for. Um, but we still see examples of it, unfortunately, don't we? Like we've all probably seen, you know, and, and heard of stories of people um, on the opposite side of what we believe in. Um, like Dan mentioned the sun there. Um, I mean, I've seen people buy it in this city, unfortunately, from like underneath counters and what have you. So it does does exist and it does happen, um, which is just ridiculous for obvious reasons. But I, I find it difficult to say they can because I think it goes against everything we believe in as a city and as a club. Um, I, you have to say city because, to be fair, the Blue Arf are, are together really with us um, as yeah. people on on what on, on this sort of stuff. We're not just Liverpool Football Club, but. Like I said, unfortunately, uh, in many ways, um, it does exist and, and they will support us up and down the country. So um, it's a really difficult one to answer. Uh, but like I say, we're going to come on to sort of the players and, and what the manager believes. Um, and I think we're very individual, just to touch on what Dan was on about a minute. I think we're very individual and it kind of makes us what we are. And that us against the world mentality kind of runs through the football club and it runs through the fan base and when we're in times of adversity, like we've seen over the years, that kind of what makes us stand out and get through these sort of things. So I love it. I love us for it, to be honest with you. And, and whether we kind of look down upon by the rest of the country or not, doesn't really bother me. I quite like that in a way, um, because why we'll do want to follow, like you mentioned the voting patterns there, the fact that this area, this region always goes against literally everyone around us is brilliant, I think, because it just shows that we stand up for what we believe in. Yeah. And the fact the rest kind of follow the crowd, that's entirely up to them. Like, if that's how they want to be, then so be it. But round here, nothing's changing because we know what's right and wrong for us. And the way we've been treated kind of makes us believe that. I try and stay, stay quite rational on certain subjects. Um, but I'd say that if you, you know, if you're a Liverpool supporter and you support or you vote for the Tories, then you're not an actual proper Liverpool supporter because in my yeah. eyes, the club and the city are absolutely entwined. Yeah. But if you're supporting Liverpool in name, you're supporting the city as well. This isn't a franchise. You know, this isn't just a sporting organisation. When the club are having to assist with food banks mm-hmm. because the community around Liverpool FC and around the Anfield area has suffered so much by the cuts of the austerity measures of the Tory government. I don't see how anyone in their right mind can proudly vote Conservative in their best interest. Yeah. Support and both, support really. Liverpool FC. They're yeah. not mutually, you know, well, sorry, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive things. It's, it's one and the same for me. If you support Liverpool, you support the city of Liverpool too. <laughs> and it, it really does baffle me. When you see, and you see it a lot on Twitter, people bring this arguments up. I just can't see how you can win it by saying, well, you know, I vote Tory because blah, 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 X, Y, and Z, but mm. I support Liverpool because that's my club. It's not your club. You know, the set yeah. of players that you quite like and a colour red you enjoy. <laughs> you've got to support the city too if you're going to support the club. Yeah, yeah. you did right. Because they're so kind of intertwined in a way. You mentioned austerity there, and I want to kind of engage your kind of expertise here really um if we kind of look at the historical uh, context behind this what moment 
or what moments do you think are the most significant in moulding the mentality that Liverpool has? So the ones that spring to mind are obviously um, the managed decline under Thatcher, Hillsborough, the way it was covered, the way and the way it still is. If you heard what um, Jonathan Goldberg said on on Radio Five Live, for example, um, austerity, which you've mentioned, and obviously more recent developments like um, the Brexit vote and, and Boris Johnson's election. So, which do you think? Maybe it's hard to pick the most significant moment, but you know, where do you think the, the source of this really lies? It's a constant drip effect, and it has been for a hundred years. From when in 1911 Churchill sent the gunboats, sent the gunboats up the Mersey, and against you know rioters in Liverpool, when the Prime Minister at the time, Ramsay Macdonald, said that Liverpool is rotten to the core and we need to recognise it, when you get through to even uh, in 1981 rioters or, or you know uprisers in the in the Granby area were getting called animals, to 1982 when the Daily Mirror are saying we need to build a fence around the city of Liverpool because it's an exhibition of everything that's gone wrong in the country. Even to things like on television when the, I can't think of his name, Stanley something or other, he was an actor in Coronation Street and, you know, he was a, a ruffian, he was a scouser, but he was always portrayed as, as workshy and criminal. And these TV shows like Bread, which always mm. referenced the doldrums and it, it painted an image of, of Liverpool people that it, it builds up for 60 years that when you get to Hillsborough, and you get to obviously 96 people died in 95 and then the six and then the 96 yeah. person later um that for the following day the sun newspaper can say that you know liverpool men took out their penises and urinated on dead bodies before stealing from them and that kind of bastardization and dehumanization is not even something that they've afforded you know the right wing press have afforded migrants who have been the enemy of recent years. It's the most obscene and unnatural way of painting human beings. And it wasn't called out. It became um, the narrative that, you know, that it's quite plausible for Scousers to have done this. So that constant drip effect over, you know, 100 years or so has, it's led to the double and triple disaster, which was, you know, Hillsborough in the sense that the families could be subjected to that kind of treatment, that a city would have to fight in the way that it did do um, because of, you know, the dehumanisation which happens over such a long, long period. that I couldn't, I couldn't reference one, one individual moment. You can point to, to little episodes in history. So you can point to, for example, uh, the militant era when Margaret Thatcher made it, you know, a policy. It was actually enshrined that the, the press that she was favor, favorable with would, you know, spread mistruths around Liverpool and always paint Liverpool as this workshy, strike-happy environment. So, therefore, it was easy to create an enemy within. And, uh, yeah, you, you, people who still complain when Liverpool fans like to boo the national anthem really haven't comprehended the significance of the Hillsborough disaster. They yeah. haven't comprehended the enormity of it, the raw emotion and how it's going to be intangible, or, or sorry, tangible rather, for generations still to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that last thing you said there, you know, really stands out to me that it doesn't feel like it can necessarily be recovered at this stage, but it definitely can't be. And if any, it might actually be, the divide might be growing more 
more pronounced in a way, especially under the current leadership that we have. So just for this final section, we're going to talk about how well the football club is representing the city. Um, I, th- I think we talked earlier in the podcast about them as kind of synonymous in a way. Um, but in recent years, uh, it's maybe not been quite that simple. So let's talk first of all about, you say, the positive side. Um, Dan C, I'll, I'll come to you first. You know, Jordan Henderson, do you think, obviously, it happens to be his, his decade anniversary at the club. Do you yeah. think he has sort of come to embody the, the principles of the city? Yeah, and, and I think that's a massive reason why his decade anniversary this week has been celebrated so richly, to be honest. I think what he's done, certainly since he became captain, like he had a lot of people had the misgivings about him probably before that, but since he became captain, um, I think he's been outstanding. I think he really gets the club, and I think that's huge for Liverpool. Probably more so than, I mean, I probably would say this, but more so than most clubs. I think having a captain that understands, certainly following Gerard, obviously a local lad who completely got the club, it was important that we kind of carried on that mantra. Um, and I think he, I think he gets it. I think he, I think it's helped by the fact he comes from another working class city, if you like. You know that, yeah, people orientated type of person um, I'm thinking of others which is what this city does so well in my opinion um, is kind of already within him and you've seen certain cases of obviously over the last year probably more than ever with him kind of galvanising other captains to do the right thing and um, just the way he is generally on the pitch and off the pitch in terms of thinking of others and making sure we've seen all like the the football club stuff they put out, he's often the sort of figurehead for that sort of stuff, ringing out to fans who've been struggling over the last 12 months, etc. He's brilliant, all that. And I think another one who's really good, I want to mention is Andy Robertson, um, particularly with the food bank sort of stuff. And again, you know, sort of Glaswegian lad comes from another sort of working class background and knows what it means to sort of fight for what he's got. Um, And I think those are two qualities that really lend themselves well to the club um, and I think they're massive reasons as to why they seem to get it and obviously you know speaking more generally we've got Trent um, local lads which I think is really important to have because um, obviously when Gerard left it would have been easy sort of until sort of Curtis Jones's emergence to not really have a scouser in the team um, as the song goes um, but with Trent we've kind of maintained that and I think like I said earlier I think that it's so important to this football club that we've got someone we can relate to all the time. Um, it's not going to be like the old days where it was bloody 10, 8, 9 of them at least sort of thing. But having one of them at least, I think, is really important. But in terms of Henderson, yeah, I think he's been outstanding. I think he really gets it. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned Robertson. It's probably fair to say there's quite a few players in the in the team who've shown kind of the philanthropic uh, instinct. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not just him, but obviously he kind of stands out. Um, Dan F, there's a, there's a section um, in in your book um, that I've had a look at, and you talk about how Klopp's politics kind of align quite nicely with the clubs um, and, the well, certainly the cities. How, how close are the parallels, do you think, between him and Bill Shankly, who is probably, as an individual maybe the most significant figure in Molden, the identity of the club, like how 
closely can those two be tied? In terms of well, having to factor in the big business that is modern football, mm. um, you, you do have to say that there's some parallels there. Bill Shankly as well, he, the modern understanding of Bill Shankly comes down a lot of it to media quotes and sound bites and stuff, but he had experiences with fans, you know, day-to-day interactions with fans, which were the community at heart. He, he'd have he'd have fans around for tea and Nessie and Cook, you know, these are certain examples um, which don't even get spoken about. You'd only hear them through word of mouth. So Bill Shankly was obviously the, the, the father of it all, but for factoring in modern day society and modern day football as well, Jurgen Klopp's as good as you're going to get in that yeah. mold. And even if we think about the basis of this podcast today, you know, Jurgen Klopp has said a few times, oh, the Liverpool nation, oh, yeah, mm. it's not England, it's Liverpool. <laughs> and uh, he's probably had some sway overnight with that campaign where, you know, they scribbled out England and put Liverpool as a republic. Yeah. Uh, so much so that this was once like an edgy partisan stance and it's yeah. getting more normalised and that's really nice and it's unbelievable to have a, a manager who's quite willing to speak on a subject like that that when it came to think, things like um, the European Super League even Neville and Carragher were saying it won't be Liverpool, like it's not going to happen Liverpool will be the one to, to fall first and everyone was just waiting for Henderson and Robertson and Klopp to come out with these statements saying mm. I don't like it, I don't want to be a part of it um, and that kind of, you know, that that stance that or that that position that they now hold within football has come through years and years and years of being on the right side of history. So uh, Henderson, you know, he's a patron of the NHS now. Mm. At a time when the Tory government are making cuts to it, that yeah, Marcus Rashford rightly gets a lot of acclaim for it. Yeah, our lads as well are still doing these type of things and. Andy Robertson, like you said earlier, Dan going going to the food banks and such. Even um, Divock Origi today. Yeah, you know, yeah. For those who, who aren't aware, he's laid down money for scholarships for local um, local students to get into the University of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. That link should remain a synergy. That must remain a constant going forwards. And it wasn't always there. You know, lest we forget Liverpool FC placed Anfield into austerity. They were mm. buying up homes and letting them go to ruin and gentrifying the area. So it's not always been a great relationship, but that was a different board, that was a different manager, a different time. And now the link there is really nice. Um, so, yeah, long may it continue. Yeah, and I think, obviously, the level of sporting success has you know increased massively the last few years but I also think it's quite an important part of the the way this the team this current crop of players has been embraced and you know because remember really that that sort of portion of Liverpool history kind of around the turn of the decade and then maybe you know sort of between that kind of failed league title bid in 2014 and when success really started on the clock like I think there were a lot of Liverpool fans who Fallen slightly out of love with football in a way, um, and the behaviour of the club and kind of the Hicks and Gillette era certainly hadn't helped that. And obviously, no. it's in tandem with what's going on on the pitch as well. But one of the things you mentioned, Dan, was uh, the Super League, and we've kind of got to talk about 
the flip side of this um, football club city values debate um, and kind of FSG's um, some of the decisions they've made which have flown in the face of um, those values and we've obviously talked about them in, in depth before on the podcast and it, it came out this the punishment came out this week um, which FSG will uh, will be taking care of rather than taking money out the club but I guess in a general sense, Dan F, um, how much do you think the various scandals really that we've witnessed, so obviously not only the Super League, but ticket prices and furlough probably stand out. How much do you think the values of the club are under threat and will be placed under threat in, in the decades to come? It's a difficult one to answer because the capitalists, you know, they, they bought the club to make money and we can't dress that up in any other way. And they've done so. Um, you know, they've increased the profit of the club five times over. But are they as bad as, for example, the Glazers? You know, we, we are getting to the point now where they're, they're opening a dialogue and having Spirit mm. of Shankly, you know, having some kind of representation on the board that... It wasn't necessary. The anger wasn't there for us to storm the pitch like like it was at Old Stafford. Um, because for as bad as some of the decisions have been with FSG, as an institution, they do actually listen to the supporters a lot of the times. And they backtrack on some of the things that they yeah. do wrong. Where It makes you think, if only you'd have listened in the first place or come yeah, to yeah. us, <laughs> come to get an understanding before you've made these decisions. Um, that I think there's an element of them being willing to actually be held to account afterwards. They've got to protect their assets. They don't want to sell Liverpool FC. So John Envy came out and he gave that statement. You know, believe it or not, what he said. He didn't really have to do that. Like the Glazers are faceless and nameless and and have been for a, a generation. I think FSG know that you'd only get success in life or in capitalism, shall we say when everyone's pulling in the same direction. It's no coincidence that Liverpool have been successful in the same era where Manchester United have been in total disarray. You know, where the fans have had the green and gold banners, they've gone downhill since. So Liverpool's, you know, trajectory has gone in the the other way. I think FSG recognised that. And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a massive fan of them, but I know that there's worse out there. And I would hate the idea of us being led by some oil-barren nation uh, with terrible human rights records for success. If we can get success and okay, FSG balls up every here and now, but we'll backtrack on it and do the right thing in the end, then I, I think as a flip side, that's that's far, far more in line with what the fans want in, in this city than if we were owned by some oligarch or by some you know, really dodgy <laughs> state and nation. And Dan, would you say that it is almost a lesser of the evils kind of situation when it comes to the ownership. <laughs> I would do, yeah. And I think I've said it before on here, to be honest. I think um, I kind of fall into line with, with what the other Dan said there. Um, I, I don't, I'm not FSG's biggest fan. Um, I wish they'd have this dialogue, like they might be moving forwards now, so they can realise a mistake before they do it. Um, I just wonder how many things he might have tried to implement before. We might be very lucky to have Jurgen Klopp, who kind of would probably put a stop to a lot of the stuff beforehand. I don't think he was 
briefed on the Super League, was he, beforehand? But he'd have been pretty strident in his view that it shouldn't go ahead. So that was a shame. Because um, he'd got the same beliefs as us, and I, I genuinely believe that, um, which I think is fantastic, uh, just to touch on him again. Um, but yeah, I, I'd much rather be run by these who seem quite willing to admit they were wrong and quite open about it. They've done it on countless occasions now. Um, people have got different sort of explanations as to why they took, kind of took on the furlough scheme. Um, people believe it was because they wanted players to take pay cuts and were trying to force that hand. Um, whether you believe that or not is a different story, but at least when there is kind of a groundswell of you're doing the wrong thing, up until now, they've said, yeah, we are. They've listened to the fans, which is kind of all we can really ask for. Hopefully, they listen to the fans from the outset now and we don't get there. But, like I said, I'd much rather have this than some sort of terrible country leading us from afar. Yeah, well, we'll certainly see if the Super League is a seminal moment in that respect. And it, one thing it certainly did demonstrate is uh, fan power, um, not only at Liverpool, but obviously at clubs across the country. But that's um, pretty much all we've got time for. In this episode, I've really enjoyed uh, the discussion that we've had and I hope anyone listening who maybe didn't have much of an understanding of the Scouse Nicking Rush idea, I'd like to think that you do now um, have a bit more of a, a grounding in it. So thanks very much uh, for coming on, Dan. Uh, before we go, uh, we make sure we give all our guests an opportunity to plug anything that they want uh, the listeners to read. So if you've got anything there, <laughs> go for it. Uh- just local, the book. If you liked some of the stuff I was saying, or if you'd like to know more, then there's a lot of information in, in local and can be found online. I've not been able to get through the full thing yet, but from what I have read, it is, um, it's a, almost an essential read for uh, for Liverpool fans. So uh, I'd uh, second that one. Any final thoughts from you, Dan C? Uh, no, just like to say thanks to the other Dan. Um, really, really insightful um, and, yeah, genuinely brilliant. So I appreciate that. Oh, very nice. Thank you both, David and Dan, for having me on. I've enjoyed it. Good. No problem. Um, so, that, as I say, that's all for this week. Uh, we'll be back at the end of next week uh, for episode 22. But for now, that's all we've got time for. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts.